Welcome to a podcast of a sermon delivered at the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood in New Jersey. Our congregation is a place where you will find inspiration in the richness of diverse beliefs and the power of community. Detailed information about the Unitarian Society of Ridgewood is available on our website, uuridgewood.org. Earlier this week, I went to teach a session of an extension learning course at Bergen Community College. This is the second year I've done this. The course, I think, is titled Philosophy and Religion, and five of us come through one each time to talk about our religious tradition. It's fun. I've had fun both times I've gone, but it's also a little bit tricky because trying to condense Unitarian Universalist history, but also as full as possible an understanding of Unitarian Universalist identity into one and a half hours is pretty challenging. One thing I have found myself saying both times, and I often say this at our own UU class, is that there was a time in our history when we Unitarian Universalists tended to define ourselves by what we are not, rather than by what we are. We are not creedal. We are not universally Christian. We are not hierarchical, and so on. These days, we try a lot harder to define ourselves by what we are. We are covenantal. We are justice-seeking. We are theologically open. Some years ago, the Unitarian Universalist Association leaned hard into this new way of speaking about who we are and did what the marketing world calls a rebranding. It's what brought us that orange chalice and the double U's logo. But it also brought us some language to describe who we are. The report that accompanied that launch of that new logo said, We are Unitarian Universalists. We are brave, curious, and compassionate thinkers and doers. We are believers in what is good, what is right, and what is just. We are diverse in faith, ethnicity, history, and spirituality, but aligned in our desire to practice our faith and belief in tangible ways. We foster a respectful community hallmarked by action, love, and acceptance of all people. We have radical roots and a history as self-motivated spiritual people. We think for ourselves and actively object to what we believe is wrong. We have a track record of standing on the side of people, love, justice, and peace. Our faith has always been motivated by a desire to contribute to the greater good. We are a house without walls, a congregation without spiritual boundaries, and a movement towards a more action-oriented faith in yourself, your God or gods, and your beliefs. Simply put, we are a guided path towards a better you and a better world. That's a long way of saying who we are. A shorter way might be we are a theologically diverse people committed to bettering ourselves, welcoming others, and transforming this world to one of love, justice, and compassion. That is what we strive for, what the mission of this congregation declares. No matter what, whatever the world brings... We believe in growing our minds and spirits, working with love for justice, and transforming the world. This is the time in our service when we reflect on the things of greatest importance, a time when all of us are given space to meditate, pray, breathe in silence, side by side. So this morning, I invite you to take a deep breath in, find a comfortable position for your body, 
Close your eyes if that helps and feels comfortable. Try to quiet your mind. Try to hear the small, still voice of your own ideals, your own heart, your very deepest being. We come together this morning as seekers on many paths. We come as atheists, Christians, Buddhists, Jews, agnostics, Hindus, Muslims, as Unitarian Universalists, questioning, wondering, seeking not so much finite answers as infinite truths. We come together as people desiring connection to ourselves, to our own deepest beings, to each other, to this earth we share and its creatures. We come as people desiring a community where we can be fully known. We come together this morning as justice seekers striving to know what is ethical and moral and right and to turn the world toward it. We come wanting desperately to believe that the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice and that we can help bring about a world of beloved community. As we come into silence together, aware of who we are and who we long to be, we hold in our minds and hearts the tragic loss of life in California earlier this week and continuing into this weekend with the wildfires. We honor those who have served and fought in the name of our highest ideals. We hold in our minds and hearts the pain of division that cuts through our nation. We focus ourselves on the vision of a better world one of true welcome, love, and justice. Take a deep breath. May we find love in ourselves, and when we can't, may we find it among each other. May we always remember that when our cup runs dry, we can offer each other a drink. When we hunger, we can offer each other sustenance. We give thanks for the chance to do this for each other, with each other. May we find strength in the days, months, and years to come, and may we turn to each other for hope when we begin to despair. May we keep love and our highest ideals at the center of our beings. This past Tuesday, Ethan and I, Ethan's my oldest son, were hurrying to the bus stop to get to his tennis class. And just in case you're wondering, he told me I could share this story. He's pulling on his coat. I'm throwing my bag over my shoulder. We're bustling past the premature Christmas decorations that are already going up in our neighborhood. And he says, Mom, you know how we say every Sunday, whoever you are and whomever you love, you're welcome? Well, that's silly. If Darth Vader or Lord Garmadon came in, we would not welcome them. They would try to kill everybody. My first reaction was a silent, yes. Like, that welcome we say every Sunday. You may find it repetitive. 
those of you who are here with us every Sunday, but it turns out someone is listening. <laughs> Our children are listening. Thank goodness they are in here with us a few Sundays a month to hear that message of love and welcome over and over. My second reaction was a deep sense of love and gratitude that my child is thinking about what that phrase actually means. He's considering what it means to welcome all in this space, how that applies to people we know might be dangerous or damaging. He's not just hearing what we say about who we are and what this place is, he's actually wondering about it. My third reaction was an actual verbal response to my child. I told him how proud I was that even though he says he doesn't like to be up here before RE classes start, that he's still listening, and how proud I was that he was thinking about it. And then I said, you have isolated the single most challenging, well, I think it's the most challenging, part of Unitarian Universalism. I reminded him of our first principle. We affirm the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And that that doesn't mean we affirm the inherent worth and dignity of all behaviors. I told him we believe that people can change, that people can make better choices. I reminded him that forgiveness and redemption are things we deeply believe in, real things that can change a life. It helps, of course, that both Lord Garmadon, who's the evil villain in Lego Ninjago, for those of you who don't have a six-year-old in your life, Lord Garmadon and Darth Vader both find redemption and change their lives. That helped. So I said we would let Lord Garmadon and Darth Vader in. If they tried to hurt anyone, we wouldn't be okay with that. We wouldn't let that stand. But we would do our best to welcome them. And I told him that, in fact, sometimes being part of a community like this is what changes a person's life. I share this story this morning because I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be a Unitarian Universalist in this particular moment in this country's history. I've been thinking about what it means to welcome all in this time of great division. I was especially considering this in light of Nancy Pelosi's speech after the elections in which she called for working together in a bipartisan marketplace of ideas. Many have criticized Pelosi's speech. A quick perusal online will show you that particularly the part where she said, we will strive for bipartisanship with fairness on all sides. We have a responsibility to find our common ground where we can, stand our ground where we can't, but we must try. The American people want peace, they want results, they want us to work for positive results for their lives. On its face, what she said I think is accurate. Most of us do want peace and for our lives to take more positive turns. I think what was a struggle for many was the idea of looking for common ground. And I have to confess, I had a similarly negative reaction to the speech. About two and a half weeks ago, I had read a piece um, in Time, the online Time, and it was written by this woman, Tayari Jones, who's a professor. It was titled, There's Nothing Virtuous About Finding Common Ground. The author tells the story of being just five years old in 1976 when apartheid was still going strong. Her family were activists, so she knew deeply what was happening. She tells the story of being on a trip with a friend to the Atlanta Zoo. The friend's mom pulls into a Gulf gas station. The gas company at the time was supporting apartheid, essentially. Jones told the friend's mom, she explained why she shouldn't get gas there. That friend's mom said it was cheapest, got out of the car, started to pump the gas, 
And Jones remembers getting out of the car at five years old, refusing to get back in, crossing her arms over her chest, crying. Her dad was called to pick her up. It may seem a small stand to have taken, giving up the zoo for your beliefs, but for a five-year-old, it's a pretty big deal. Tayari Jones goes on to write in this piece, I recall this experience now, over 40 years later, as we are in a political moment where we find ourselves on opposite sides of what feels like an unbreachable gulf. I find myself annoyed by the hand-wringing about how we need to find common ground. People ask, how might we meet in the middle as though this represents a safe, neutral, and civilized space? This American fetishization of the moral middle is a misguided and dangerous cultural impulse. The middle is a point equidistant from two poles, that's it. There's nothing inherently virtuous about being neither here nor there. Buried in this place is a false equivalency of ideas, what you might call the good people on both sides phenomenon. What is halfway between moral and immoral? That piece has stuck with me as we moved into the election and post-election, especially that line. What is halfway between moral and immoral? I mentioned last week how we walk a line here when we talk politics, and I want to be very clear again about one thing, which is that this is not about parties. I'm not endorsing any party. I am, as I did last week, endorsing a set of ideals and values. These midterms, there were some definite pockets in which our Unitarian Universalist values were hard to find. Voter suppression, outright racism and misogyny, an actually publicly out neo-Nazi received a quarter of the votes in a Chicago suburb, despite having been abandoned by his own party. An anti-Semitic white supremacist in California lost his bid for a congressional seat, but still managed to pull 29% of the vote. Many more vocal neo-Nazis lost their elections. A couple of candidates clearly aligned with white supremacist groups won theirs, like Steve King in Iowa. So by and large, these candidates were shut down, but they weren't all, and many of them got a shocking number of votes. A quarter of the voters in that Chicago suburb were not bothered by the fact that the candidate was an out neo-Nazi. Let that sink in for a minute. We are indeed in a time of great division, and how we choose to react to it matters enormously. We are now reaping seeds planted generations ago. We are reaping the harvest of slavery and Jim Crow laws, of economic policies that drove wealth inequality, of unchecked violence against women, and so much more. How we respond to this moment will matter not just for our own lives and our sense of moral righteousness, but for the generations to come that will reap what we have sown. In this moment, we have to consider what it means to respond to that division as a people of faith, of ethics, of morality, and of ideals. There was a little public, like, political cartoon going around this week on Facebook. It shows two men, one at podium A, the other at podium B. It talks about how we often view the goal as two opposite sides finding some common ground in the middle. The next frame shows person B on top of a hill with a sign that says civil rights, person A down in a hole with a sign that says genocide. And the caption reads, however, this framework presumes both viewpoints are valid and equal 
which in reality not all viewpoints are or should be considered as such. The final caption says, and sometimes when you concede ground to meet in the middle, you still end up losing. And that frame shows the two men in suits shaking hands between the podiums under a sign that says murder, halfway between genocide and civil rights. Sometimes compromise doesn't work. Meeting the middle isn't always acceptable or possible. Stepping halfway back from the moral position toward the immoral, I think that's no longer moral, right? I absolutely believe in some degree of relativity. I wouldn't equate premeditated murder with self-defense. I wouldn't equate our national European military actions in World War II with our actions in Iraq. And yet we all know that the use of force to end genocide, though it may be righteous, still has a moral and spiritual cost to those that participate and to our nation as well. When we step back from what we know is right, there is a cost. I'm not naive enough to think we can conduct business as usual in our government without compromise, but I continue to wonder at what point we decide that business as usual is no longer good enough, and at what point does that still small voice of moral courage and righteousness become so loud for us that we can no longer ride in the car to the zoo? We can no longer compromise even if refusing means sacrificing. We're called by our principles and our ideals to welcome all people, to treat everyone with respect and dignity as befits their inherent worth and humanity. We're called to believe in change and possibility. What we are not called to do is compromise on our morals for the sake of business or civility. In fact, I might argue that we've done that long enough. Imagine how different the world might be if those of us with privilege got out of the car on the way to the zoo and refused to get back in, as long as others were themselves engaging in immoral acts or supporting those that do. How might the world actually change? In that same article, Tayari Jones writes this. As Americans, we are at a crossroads. We have to decide what is central to our identity. Is the importance of our performance of national unity more significant than our core values? Is it more meaningful that we understand why some of us support the separation of children from their parents, or is it more crucial that we support the reunification of these families? Is it more essential that we comprehend the motives of white nationalists, or is it more urgent that we prevent them from terrorizing communities of color and those who oppose racism? Should we agree to disagree about the murder and dismemberment of a journalist? Should we celebrate our tolerance and civility as we stanch the wounds of a world and a climate with a poultice of national unity? Compromise is not valuable in its own right, and justice seldom dwells in the middle. Jones is calling us out, all of us in this country, for privileging compromise and civility over justice, and I don't think she's wrong. We have to be very careful about what we mean when we suggest compromise, very careful about what it means to find common ground. In fairness to Nancy Pelosi, she did say, and stand our ground where we must. I think all of us, as individuals whose voices matter in our representational democracy, have to work to discern for ourselves where our line is on the national stage. What do we feel we have to stand strong on? What compromises are we unwilling to make? And for those that we are willing to make, who will suffer from those compromises? 
In some ways, I don't anticipate anyone objecting to me saying that we need to be cautious and thoughtful in our willingness to compromise on our morals when it comes to politics. But the topic feels much more fraught to me when I consider what Ethan asked earlier this week. It's one thing to say, don't compromise on your morals, don't compromise on civil rights or voting rights or peace, but there's another layer here that's about how we treat individuals. It's messy. Just like our commitment to welcome all is messy the minute we ask the question about whether or not we'd let in Darth Vader. What exactly does it mean to say don't compromise? And how exactly does it mean we ought to treat people whose views are different from our own? I have, as I assume many of you do, people in my life that I am reasonably certain have endorsed candidates whose moral position is abhorrent to me, people in my life who, if I dug a little deeper, I would likely find that they held some views themselves that were abhorrent to me. That feels messy and complicated, and we're coming up on Thanksgiving and the holidays. <laughs> I suspect many of us will encounter some of these folks in our lives over the next two months, and the question always is, what do I do? How should I be? How do I talk to the people in my life that I care about but whose position is so different from mine? What does it look like to welcome all but not welcome certain behaviors? What does it look like to welcome all but be willing to take that strong stand? Because I realize that everything I've just said about not compromising may make it sound like I'm saying you should end every relationship you have with anyone whose moral virtue isn't up to your standards. That's not what I'm saying. There are exceptions to all rules. Ethics and morality is not as straightforward as I wish. And I don't have all the answers. I wish I did. But I know this. We believe people can change. We believe in redemption and awakenings and new understandings. We also feel an obligation to help change the world. And that starts, I think, with laws that change the world, but also with changing people. That quarter of that Chicago suburb that voted for the neo-Nazi, they aren't likely to change if everyone around them who holds a moral stance abandons them. If anything, they'd be more likely to dig in, right? Those of us with privilege who don't face immediate danger by interacting with folks whose moral views are different from ours have an obligation to stay in relationship as long as it's safe and work hard to change their mind. We do that, indeed, by listening, by trying to understand, and by talking about a different way of seeing the world and being. We do it by keeping our own ideals and morals in clear sight, speaking in measured ways with facts and evidence and a strong sense of what is right. Collectively, nationally, politically, legally, we don't compromise, especially not when it comes to other people's lives, liberty, or freedom. One-on-one -on -one with each other, we don't compromise. We call out even our friends and family on their racist jokes or their misogynistic thinking. We absolutely do not stand idly by if real violent harm is being done. And we also commit to giving others the opportunity for change and redemption by trying to teach a new way, by speaking clearly and gently, not angrily. If we don't do this, these folks will go on being filled with hate, feeling justified in their own fear and anger, 
and teaching it to their children, children who then become at risk of perpetuating the cycle. Because as I learned again from my own child this week, they are listening. They hear the words we say to each other in our houses of worship, in our homes. They listen and they learn and they wonder. And in the end, most of the time, they trust us. Last week, we talked about sowing seeds of kindness and compassion as we move through our lives and especially when we vote. This week, my reminder to you beyond the idea that ethics is complicated is that those seeds do grow and we will reap the rewards or the horrors. Hate doesn't stop with one person. If we embrace that kind of hate ourselves or if we refuse to engage when safe with people with different views, we seed ground in the fight to grow a harvest of hope. We have a duty to be part of a changing world, and that means changing the people who would push for a continued world of injustice and oppression. Or at the very least, it means breaking their cycle of generationally transmitted hatred and fear. It really is messy, and I can't tell you when your moment will come or should come that you'll get out of the car and refuse to move, even if it means missing the zoo. But I hope you'll think about where that line might be for you. I hope you'll deeply consider the cost of compromise to yourself, to your children and family and friends, and to folks out there unknown to you as yet who might be impacted by the choices we make. Where we go from here isn't predetermined or perfectly clear. All I can really say today is this. We go forward, we keep living consciously, loving thoroughly, listening deeply, and working for justice however we can. We keep on trying to change the world, one mind, one heart, one moment at a time. Go out in the world and keep on loving, living, and working for the future you long for. Go in peace.